0: Good Good morning, new community. My name is Mickey Sanchez, and it's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, I've been a member here for about five years, attended for about six. Um, here's a quick picture of my family. Some of you may know them already. My wife is Michelle. She, uh, she works for the Evangelical Covenant Church, which is the denomination that our church is a part of. And these are my kids, uh, Seth and Hope, 11 and 8. Um, quick fun fact about my name, Mickey. Um, so When I was born, I was a surprise to my parents and uh, they felt bad because the youngest, who had been the youngest for like 11 years, he was going to be sort of destroyed that he was no longer the youngest. He would now be serving somebody younger. And Seth might know a little bit about this, <laughs> that uh, the youngest often gets the preference. So my mom thought, let me, um, let me make him feel better. Let me give him the chance to name our, our last son. right? And so now I have the name Mickey. But you might think, you might think it was vengeful, right, Mickey Mouse, right? Um, it was actually after his favorite Yankees player, Mickey Rivers, which of course nobody really knows about. Uh, Rivers, <laughs> Rivers is very fast. Um, I tend not to be, but but there you have it. that. That's where my name comes from. In case there was some, I'm not Irish. It's just it, that's where it comes from. <laughs> so. Um, and just a quick, another uh, bit of connection for some of you who might not know me so well, but might have gotten emails, or, or maybe the men in your life got emails. I, I, a few summers ago, got together some men for barbecues. It wasn't just for fun. It was to, you know, worship God and all that stuff. And so uh, we also had retreats that came out of that, uh, one retreat, uh, which was very transformational. And out of that, uh, some of the men wanted to continue some of that momentum. So there were some uh, life groups that men kept doing. Um, so never put down a barbecue or a picnic. Please do come out. You never know my, what might come out of that. Um, <laughs> so I hope to see you later. And if anyone wants to do a barbecue later in the summer uh, for, for guys, to start those up again, let me know. One other bit of info about myself, um, just so you get some bio on me. So I do work with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I am a supported missionary of the church. And uh, I, I work at Northwestern with graduate students and faculty. And I am super grateful for the support of Newcom, both in prayer and financially, and a number of you individually also come alongside us, which is amazing. So one quick minute to update you on what's happened this past year. It's, it's you know, pandemic, all sorts of uh, justice issues in the world, things going wrong. And so it was an incredible year, very challenging uh, to do ministry. However, it ended up being fertile ground for discipleship, for us to ask the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? in the midst of all of this upheaval. Um, it's one thing to follow Jesus when things are okay, but what, what, what happens when everything is upended? So that was very transformational for our group. And then we also started uh, a, an event called the Faculty Roundtables on, on Science and Religion. These were originally meant to be in person at a nice faculty club, you know, great hospitality. But with the pandemic, we had to scrap all of that. So we were worried, would anyone come out? Would everyone be zoomed out, as many of us have been? Um, to our surprise, over the course of this last year, we had over 250 faculty join us, the vast majority of whom we, as far as I know, did not consider themselves Christian. So we started this, this sort of movement of interfaith dialogue around our faith in science in conflict. Do they work together well? And we piloted this for grad students too. Uh, so we had a couple of those, and again, well attended. So. Um, all of this was possible thanks to your support. Oh, one other thing. Um, one of my leaders recently told me uh, she had been walking with a couple of friends who were exploring Jesus, and, uh, and they had a lot of questions, and so she helped them, you know, go through that. And they, they recently decided that they wanted to follow Jesus. So that's amazing. I can't believe that that happened even in the midst of all this. This was all kind of virtual. Yes, thank, thanks so much. Um, so, so thank you so much for your support. None of this would be possible without that. And uh, and if you're curious to learn more about this, um, feel free to email me, my email will be put up. It's mickey.sanchez at intervarsity.org. You might wanna jot that down too because uh, in the sermon, I'll be starting a conversation. I won't have time to finish it. (laughs) But uh, I would love to talk to you, what your reactions are to it, what your thoughts are, if there's any pushback. One of my favorite uh, pastors in New York, um, one of the things that formed him was the the feedback. When he first got to New York, New Yorkers are pretty blunt. and he would say, "Yep." Over coffee, they 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 would use uh, you know they wouldn't use euphemisms. They would tell him <laughs> that it sucked in various ways, and that made him an incredible preacher. So, feel free. Just hopefully not in the face, but feel free to to come and and share your thoughts on today and and, and continue the conversation. So, as you can tell, I'm pretty excited about ministry, about discipleship, helping people grow in Christ, helping people get to know Christ for the first time. And today's passage is uh, actually a pretty foundational text on that and so we'll be uh, looking at that. It's again part of the series where we're looking at Jesus trying to fix our eyes on him so we can be transformed and be his agents of transformation in the world. So today's passage we're going to look at is Luke chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. Feel free to open there in your Bibles or look it up on your smartphone. We'll have the text up on the screen as well. Um, It's a a famous passage. It's where Jesus calls uh, Peter uh so it's named Simon at the I'm gonna get that wrong a bunch he's Simon uh John and James to be disciples uh but I think in in light of what's happening in this passage it'll be applicable to what's gone on this past year so please turn there and if you're able please stand as we read uh this passage together to pray real quick heavenly father thank you for this opportunity to reflect on your passage together we pray that you would help us to retain whatever is helpful and may whatever is not helpful just kind of slide away take these few fish and loaves that we bring to you and multiply them in our hearts and minds we pray all this in jesus name amen all right one day as jesus was standing by the lake of gennesaret the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of god he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. You may be seated. So one of the reasons I chose this passage is because it's been a a terrible year. Pandemic, all sorts of justice issues in the world. It's been tiring as a church, we're going through the transition of our, our founding pastor. And we're in between pastors right now. So it's possible that we might be feeling fatigued, weary, and maybe wanting to check out. So in this passage, we see Jesus comes kind of at that point. The disciples had been out all night, uh, pulled an all-nighter, and, and Jesus says, you know that thing that you were doing wasn't very fruitful? Do that again. Try one more time. And, and maybe we feel like that right now. So I think this passage has something to say to us around that. And I think it's, it's when we're exhausted that Jesus comes and gives us his grace and purpose to help us move forward. It's when we're, our tank is empty that he refuels us with his love and grace and sends us out with a new mission. A quick qu- caveat here, I'm not saying rest is bad. I am not at all saying that. My wife knows that I love rest. In fact, <laughs> she- yeah, you can ask her afterwards. Uh, I, I took a spiritual personality profile test uh, not too long ago. And it said that um, the this, this sin, it was about mortal sins and all this good stuff too. Uh, but the thing I tend toward is, is sloth, which is laziness. Um, and it said some good things too, like conserves energy. Um, so, so I get it. It's important to rest. That's, this is, so I'm preaching to myself here. Um, And also, you know, in this passage, we see that Jesus asked people, this second caveat, he asked people to fish for other people, right? And in my context, I work in secular environments, um, that's very unpopular. And so we will talk about that. We'll talk about that first, actually, to clear the ground. Now, to to try to get at this passage, I'm going to break it up into four chunks, and uh, we'll see how that goes. The first one is, we'll call it the inevitability of discipleship, that Even if we feel uncomfortable with it, we all kind of do it in some way or another. Secondly, so so maybe some of our concerns aren't actually that we do it, but it's more, we'll ask what are the concerns that we have about discipleship? And then once we think through that, what are the challenges that we face when we actually try to disciple? There's a couple of things in this passage. There's of course more, but we'll look at a couple of those. And then lastly, where do we get the power for discipleship, especially if we're exhausted? How do we keep going? So that's gonna be what we'll be doing. Um, so yeah, let's start out by looking at verse ten, which says, um, "From now on, you will fish for people." So, I get it. I have been working in a university context for ten years, and uh, in sort of other contexts with people who who are not Christian for more than that. I came to faith through doubt, so it's fun for me to do this. But one thing I often hear is, "Why do you Christians have to like share your faith? Why is it that you that you need to give this away? Can't you just leave us alone?" <laughs> and um, and I get it, right? Uh, I was, when I was uh, back in Boston with InterVarsity, I was part of the Harvard Chaplaincy, and there was a resolution on religious proselytization we all had to sign. At the bottom, it said, uh, you, you promise not to proselytize. Some people didn't take that so well. If you, Some Christians didn't like that. Um, I got what the document was trying to do earlier. It was trying to make sure you don't do things that are bad, you respect people's boundaries, all good stuff. But Proselyta- uh, evangelism is another word for it. I might use that; it's a little easier to say. Uh, evangelism is is uh, a fuzzy word. What does it mean? And it has a lot of bad connotations. So let's unpack that a little bit before we um, press into this. Uh, so often, I think the concern, when I've heard it, is basically Christians have um, used their power. They haven't used love. They've used their power to coerce people to. Uh, manipulate people, to force people at the risk of death even to come to faith and the question is why would you want to keep doing something that's tied to that, right? If it's got that history, why would you keep going on with that? Um, that's a great question and in fact it's, it's very compelling um, when I think about it though I realize it's compelling I'm being compelled to take another position so there's a way in which The person who says, you shouldn't evangelize somebody to another position, themselves has a position that says, you shouldn't evangelize, and is trying to persuade me to get that position, to get to that position. Does that make sense? They're doing the thing that they asked me not to do. And so it seems to me like it's impossible not to actually try to persuade people. In in our passage in Luke 5, uh, it's not a question of whether John and Peter and and, uh, James are, are fishermen, they are. The question is, what will they fish for? Um, so, so I think it's it's somewhat inevitable that we're going to be doing this, and uh, and and that's okay. It's it's not that bad to do it. It's just how do we do it? What's the what's the main? I think the, the concerns that we have are actually elsewhere. Um, for example, one of the things I've heard often said is, uh, when you in, in church history, what's happened is. Christians have, uh, let's use colonialism as a good term for this. Christians have used power to take over other countries, exploit them for their wealth, uh, their people, and uh, and, off, and in the worst cases, kill bunches of them just for their own good, right? Um, and this is, this is sad, it is, makes me incredibly uh, hesitant to share and, and I mourn all of this. And by the way, not that, you know, I apologize for that. On behalf of Christians, I apologize that this has been our history. Um, at the same time, I think it's important that we differentiate Jesus from Christianity. So, and, and this can sound like it's, it's for my own benefit, but uh, others outside the Christian tradition have seen this. So, for example, uh, Malcolm X, he was a, a Muslim, and one of the things he would say when he was speaking out on college campuses was uh, this. He'd say, the white man has perverted the simple message of love that the prophet Jesus lived and taught when he walked upon this earth. I would explain that it was our belief that Christianity did not perform what Christ taught. I never failed to cite that even Billy Graham, challenged in Africa, had himself made the distinction, I believe in Christ, not Christianity. Now, Malcolm X is still coming from this judeo abrahamic Islamic tradition, but let's look at Gandhi for a second. He's coming from an Eastern context, and they were colonized for, for a while by Britain. Gandhi says, I like your Christ but not your Christianity. I believe in the teachings of Christ, but you on the other side of the world do not. I read the Bible faithfully and see little in Christendom that those who profess faith pretend to see. The Christians above all others are seeking after wealth. Their aim is to be rich at the expense of their neighbors. They come among aliens to exploit them for their own good and cheat them to do so. Their prosperity is far more essential to them than the life, liberty, and happiness of others. The Christians are the most warlike people. When I first read that, it was like a gut punch. Because it's true, right? We've done this. It's, it's horrible. But does this sound like the Jesus that died for his enemies? You know, Jesus isn't the only person whose uh, followers have done things opposite to what they taught. Um, and I can't spend a bunch of time here, but But just think about this. Jesus was from a marginalized people group that was colonized by Rome. He was a person of color. He was arrested on bogus charges and hung on a tree to die by the colonizers for disturbing the peace. One theologian, James Cone, um, he, he says it this way. He says, the crucifixion was clearly a first century lynching. Cone goes on to point out that in the lynching era between 1880 to 1940, white Christians lynched nearly 5,000 black men and women in a manner with obvious echoes of the Roman crucifixion of Jesus. Yet these Christians did not see the irony or contradiction in their actions. And get this, while Jesus was hung on the tree, he was saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I don't know how you get from that logically to, you know what, we need to go out and uh, and kill and rape in the name of Jesus, right? It doesn't make sense. Um, And I think that goes to show that that it's possible to to get this very wrong. And if you get it very wrong, it has dire consequences. And if the, the biblical account was to be believed, Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, he could have used his divine power to come down, overthrow Rome, coerce belief in him, whatever. But he didn't. He gave up that power and privilege and died for others. So it's crazy how things got twisted. And yet, can you see that there's a way in which if you actually, <laughs> if you're a colonizer giving off this message of Jesus, the, the seed for it to be undermined is in it. Tom Holland in his book, Dominion, how the Christian revolution remade the world talks about this paradoxical historical reality. Holland, by the way, uh, this about his faith when he was an adult. So as far as I can tell, he's not a Christian. He summarizes it as follows. He says, No other conquerors carving out empires for themselves had done so as the servants of a man tortured to death on the orders of a colonial official. No other conquerors had installed an emblem of power so deeply ambivalent as to render problematic the very notion of power. Holland sees what Malcolm X and Gandhi and Cohn were talking about. He sees that that this message is, is not the same as what you're seeing played out. And in fact, the message is so strong that it, it eventually does erode some of these power structures that, that are hurting people. Um, as uh, theologian Gustavo Gutierrez would say, the church cannot be a prophet in our day if she herself is not turned to Christ. So he's, <laughs> Gutierrez is saying, we need to turn to Christ, we really need to turn to the real Christ, otherwise bad things are going to happen. And... Um, and you know what, All this is true. And Jesus wants us to go out and make disciples. Now what if the disciples that we were going to go out and make were sharing good news and transforming the world, saying God is at work in our lives and in the world around us. He's trying to remake the world into a place where love and grace reign, not power and privilege. Is that a message you would want to share? Uh, Penn Gillette, a popular magician and performer, uh, considers himself an atheist. He had this encounter with uh, a Christian who tried to convert him. It was very, um, very nice, he said, actually. Um, had good things to say about it. But in the midst of talking about this, he says, says because he, he appreciated how this person uh, reached out to him, he was reflecting on it and said, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? To believe that there is everlasting life possible and not tell them that. He goes on later to compare you know, somebody getting hit by a truck. If you know you could do something, why wouldn't you share? Uh, so, And he's challenging atheists to say, they shouldn't share. Um, he's like, no, no, this makes complete sense. So when I was at Harvard, um, we ended up reworking the resolution on proselytization because we realized it was fuzzy. And I worked with the Harvard Hall chapter, one of the um, chaplains there. And Harvard Hillel, by the way, is um, kind of like university for, for Jewish communities. They work with Orthodox, reformed, conservative, uh, and other uh, traditions. And so they, you know, they were one of the groups that had a lot of concerns humanists did too. So we, we talked about it and we realized, you know, evangelism, proselytization is actually not a bad thing. Talking to each other, we all do this, whether it's for politics or Netflix, whatever it is, whether it's pro-vaccine, non-vaccine, whatever, you, we do it, we do it for all sorts of things. Um, that's not the problem. Persuasion is not the problem, it's how we do it. And we see Jesus shows us how to do it, which is giving up our power and dying for our enemies, loving them into the kingdom. And by the way, this, <laughs> I just have to say this, we, we also, um, we do this without even talking. Sometimes we, we disciple without talking. Um, it's possible even when you say no, when you don't engage somebody, you're saying, basically I don't think what you're saying is worth even considering. So there's no way around this. Um, one, one pastor, Jeff Vanderselt said, I'm convinced we do not have a disciple-making problem at all. We have plenty of people who are making disciples who then make more disciples. I live in a town where there are plenty of boys who grow up without a dad and learn to realize that men should not take responsibility for their home. So they go and repeat it, and it has gone to the second, third, and fourth generations. We have plenty of disciple-makers. The question is, what are we making disciples of? You are all disciple-makers. You will make disciples. You will make them to the second, third, and fourth generations, every one of you. Because that is how the world works. It's how God designs things to work. We learn from imitation. We follow the examples of others. And we repeat it Teach others to do the same. So the question is, again, what are we making disciples of? There is no neutral position on this, in a way. So, let's say you follow this and you're like, okay, discipleship's inevitable. That's fine. Totally good. Uh, what are some concerns then? Because w- w- there were concerns. What are the concerns with dis- discipleship, making disciples, fishing for people? One of them would be um, again this idea of colonial power, which we talked about some. Um, a second one would be uh, after after colonial power. Another thing is that um, is it true? Is it something that you know? Okay, maybe you're discipling well. You're not like a colonist, but. Are you doing it? And are you doing something worthwhile, right? Like, should you disciple for a view that's just fiction? Are you just teaching fiction? And I don't, I don't have a ton of time here, but let me just say that one of the things for me is First um, Corinthians 15. In there, uh, Paul talks about the resurrection, and he says, you know, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then our faith is basically in vain. And and for him, he actually risked his life uh, for what he was doing for the ministry that he was doing. And he's like, if, that's, if I did it for nothing, that was pointless, right? It's futile. Um, if all we have is this life, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So, so Paul is saying it matters if this is true or not. It's not just, we don't want to be sharing fiction. If it's fiction, let's move on. The reason I love sharing my faith is that I want to know if I'm wrong. If I'm sharing it with somebody and they make some good points about like, oh, actually this... I would love to, the sooner I know that I'm wrong, the better I can move on with my life, right? I'm not trying to hide my faith and protect it. I want it fully interrogated. I want it out there so I know whether it's true or not because I don't want to waste my time. And I hope none of us want to waste our time either, right? We want to know if this is true or not. And we, how will we know that unless we're talking to people who disagree pretty, pretty vehemently with us? So, um, yeah. Now, let's say you think, okay, find it's inevitable. Okay, we do it nicely. We we love people into the kingdom and this last bit like when we when we evangelize, we're uh that when we env- when, when we evangelize, we're actually um bring people with us in a good way. Let's say you're you're on board so far with Jesus's mission, you want to get on board. There are still some challenges that get in our way uh to make disciples. And a couple in here from the passage um, First, there's this challenge of true versus false discipleship. So, we just talked about whether, whether it, it matters whether it's true or not if Christianity is the case. It matters whether it's true or not whether the Jesus we follow is the real Jesus or not. And if you look at this passage um, in verse 1, we see that the crowd, there was a big crowd following Jesus. So, there's a way you can know Jesus from the context of being in a crowd. And in chapter 4, which we don't have, um, Jesus is going about healing, he's going about casting out demons, he's doing stuff in this neighborhood, and so he's kind of semi-famous, and so when, when Jesus is preaching in our passage, people come out to see him. So the crowd kind of knows about him from a distance, and it makes me wonder, like maybe there was a blessed are the cheesemakers moment in this. Um, some of you, if you know Monty Python's Life of Brian, there's a, there's a moment in that where people are in the crowd for the Sermon on the Mount, and if you think about it, when you're pretty far away, there's, there's no mic, right? So... Some people are going to mishear what Jesus said. Um, So there's this moment where someone's like, in the back of the crowd, I I think it was blessed are the cheesemakers. A woman nearby is incredulous and asks, what's so special about the cheesemakers? Her husband mansplains, saying, well, obviously it's not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any manufacturers of dairy products. So if you're in the crowd, you might be getting some incorrect views about who Jesus is and what his program is. It's possible to judge the book by its cover. Um, interestingly, you know, right before this passage in, in uh, Luke chapter 4, uh, Jesus is actually at Simon's house. He's healing his mother-in-law. So Simon has already had interaction with Jesus before Jesus gets into his boat. Um, and there's a way in which when we see Simon let Jesus into his boat, Simon is like the crowd but getting closer. He, he realizes there's something here to get from Jesus. And yeah, you can use my boat. I'm tired, but come on, come on in. We'll just put out a little bit. Uh, is that ever... And one more thing about the crowd. Right before our passage, it says that um, they didn't, Jesus wanted to go on and move to other places, but they didn't want him to leave. They wanted to keep Jesus for himself because he's useful. He's helpful. Let's, let's have him bless us. And, and it's possible for us to do the same. We might think, you know, yeah, Jesus gives me meaning, um, gives me a sense of purpose, some love and grace, but I'm gonna kinda keep it here and not share it with others. Is that that something that we might do at all? (laughs) Um, That's not how, that was never God's intention for the world. From Abraham on uh, in Genesis, God wanted us, he wanted to bless us so we could bless others. That was the whole point. In, In the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, the climax was in the kingdom of Israel when Solomon was king and people, other countries were coming and getting blessed by, by the kingdom. Afterwards, uh, the kingdom of Israel wanted to decline and it was prophesied that another king, some, someone like David would come, a messiah, a messianic figure who would uh, who'd, who'd be the person who kind of ushers in this kingdom where we would be blessed to be a blessing. And the New Testament says Jesus was that king, which I can't help myself here. By the way, this, this is one of the reasons I tend to believe Christianity is true. On, a, on the cross where, where Jesus was hung, it said he was king of the Jews. It was a taunt, but it got at this fact that people thought he was supposed to be the Messiah. Did you know that there were about 12 dozen other messianic groups, people who had these, a leader who thought they were gonna overthrow Rome. A messianic group was, um, again, the Israel was was colonized by Rome. They were, they were you know, ruled by them. They were hoping somebody would take over and and get Rome, T- take it out of there. God had promised something would happen. And so Jesus is one of them, but there were 12 others before and after Jesus. And for me, it's just interesting because we have this control group, right? All these other messianic groups, when their leader died or something happened, they're like, oh, I guess that wasn't the Messiah. Because mess- messiahs aren't supposed to die like that, right? Um, it's like saying uh, a married bachelor. That d- doesn't make sense. If you're a bachelor, but then some- you're married? No, you're not a bachelor anymore. If you're a messiah and you died, then you're not a messiah. Jesus died as well, but then people still said afterwards, he's the Messiah. Why? I'll just leave it there. I don't have too much time. But, but that's something that, you know, when I ask other people, they'll say, you know, I, that's a great point. Um, I don't know why, you know, I, there must be some other reason than, than that he rose from the dead. And, uh, and I want to offer, eh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe that he did actually rise, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. What do you do with the other so um but anyway that's a bit of a tangent i just i can't help myself sometimes so um so yeah so back to our passage uh so it seems like one sign of knowing that that you know jesus from afar is that you just use him and you want to keep him for yourself if (laughs) if you follow god then then you want to be blessed but then send it out to others so one sign of knowing jesus from afar is that you just use him and keep him to yourself now um there's a possibility of, so, so Peter, right, let's, let's look at him again. So he knows Jesus from afar, but getting closer in proximity. And when Jesus says, uh, put out, he's already tired. Peter's tired. Simon's tired. And he says, okay, fine. That's fine. Um, then when, when Jesus, after preaching, says, um, fish again, now, now Peter says something, right? He says, oh, man, we've been at this all night. I don't want to say it, but you're, you're not a fisherman. We're, you're a carpenter. We know how this game works, right? We know how this works. You fish at night. You don't fish in the day. There's no fish. And you said go out into the deep. We were, that's a hard work. But because you say so, we'll go ahead and do it. So Peter still, you know, he's got the audacity to kind of talk back to Jesus. He's like, oh, you know, you're prophet. You're, you're a rabbi. Was, okay. Then in verse 8, We go back to after the catch of the fish, um, when Peter, when Simon saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Why the change? You know, Peter had said master before, now he's saying, Lord, what's happening? You know, Peter had welcomed Jesus into his house, into his workplace, and had been sort of getting to know him and just used him, but he had him in sort of this religious kind of way. But after seeing Jesus' very command of the fish that all fishermen know, shouldn't, this shouldn't happen. And it wasn't just like a little catch. It, it tore their nets. It almost sunk both of their boats. He gets a glimpse of the divinity of Jesus, that he is not just another rabbi, another prophet. He is something more. Um, and, then, and then he says, go away from me, Lord. There's, have you ever had that moment where you, you're getting close to Jesus and you think, get away from me, Lord. When you get close to somebody that is, in your opinion, more highly intelligent, highly attractive, highly anything that you value, and you get close, there's a part of you that wants to run away, because it's sort of like I'm not worthy, right? There's a way in which you feel inadequate, and this is that, but more. This is potentially uh, this is divinity, you know, in in the Old Testament, in uh, in various parts. You see in Isaiah in uh, in Jonah, in so many of the, the prophets, when they come close to, Jesus, well, close to God, they, they want to run away. They think, oh, I'm undone. And, uh, and so Jesus is having this, uh, Peter is having this sort of reaction. Woe to me. In Isaiah 6, it says, uh, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah had just been given a vision of God, and he's, he's frightened. There's a way in which we can think of Jesus as just like a Hallmark card type of person. He's sweet, he's loving. It's not, not true, but there's more. There should be something that scares us about it, something that makes us examine who we are in the midst of it. Um, and by the way, you know, so um, when Jesus started his ministry, just like in the last chapter, he quoted from Isaiah 61 um, and he's priming readers, basically, that Luke is priming readers when they get to this part where they see Peter, Simon, reacting to Jesus in this way, they'll remember Isaiah uh, because that's a very famous part of Isaiah in the very beginning. So he's, they're already primed to, for it. So, G, so Peter's undone by this. Um, and, and I think it's, it's important for us to, to be undone because imagine this, imagine we approach Jesus as if he's just our assistant, somebody that we use to, to get things done, right? That's what colonialism was. Jesus is our, he is, we're using him, he's on our side and we're gonna go and take over the world and y'all need to convert and stuff because Jesus. Um, one of my favorite parts of the Bible is Joshua chapter five, verse 13 to 15. Joshua was on a mission from God and then he approaches this angel of the Lord, which is like a, a divine figure, and, uh, and Joshua says, you know, because the guy's got his sword drawn, he says, are you for us or for our adversaries? And God says, no. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals for the place where your sand is holy. And so Dr. Joshua did. Is that the kind of encounter we, with Jesus that we have? And imagine if more Christians, including myself, if we had that kind of encounter, right? He's not on our side. Are we on his side? Are we getting with his program to renew the ro- world? Or are we just centering ourselves? So, um, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, is this the sort of Jesus you know? Have you really met Jesus or is he just in the friend zone? Have you put in there? Uh, he is a friend, he's good, but it's like in the Chronicles of Narnia when uh, Mr. Beaver is explaining to Susan who Aslan is for the first time. Uh, he says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall rather feel nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So, an encounter with the real Jesus should transform us in this way. It should make us look at ourselves in, in a deep, transformational way, in a way that asks us to, 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 makes us want to run away, actually, in some parts of it. But that's not where it ends. Jesus does not end in fear. In verse 10, Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Simon brought up his sin. Jesus could have said, you know what? I've been meaning to talk to you about that. Or, He could have said, actually, you don't know the half of it. (laughs) He, He doesn't say any of that. Instead, he reassures Simon. He says, don't be afraid. Don't worry about your sin. I'm here. I'm with you. I'm not leaving you. Of course I know all about you. But I love you. And instead of condemning you, I've got, I've got a wonderful plan for your life, something that's going to make you grow into, in a person in ways that you couldn't have grown before. It's going to stretch you, you're going to be a whole new person, bringing in a whole new kingdom. Have you heard Jesus say to you, "Do not be afraid." Can you hear him now saying, "I'm here, I'm with you. I'm not leaving. I know everything about you and more, and I'm not leaving. Instead, I want you to join me in making the world new. So, (laughs) drawing close to Jesus, the real Jesus, should be more frightening than we care to imagine and more reassuring than we dare hope. And drawing close to Jesus leads to transformation. Um, At the end, after this encounter with Jesus, the disciples leave everything. It's not just their boat. They've had the biggest catch of their life. Is this would have been like something that financially, uh, vocationally, it's like a year's worth of, of, of wages and they just leave it. Why? It's because something better had gotten in their midst. Something more beautiful. So to summarize, one challenge of discipleship is, are we following the right Jesus? Are we sharing the right Jesus, the real Jesus? Um, it's not binary, right? Uh, We get these two mixed. Even in marriage relationships sometimes we think of the other person like we have an ideal, any relationship actually. We can idealize the other person and think they're like this and then we we react to them in that way. So for example, I could say to my wife, this is hypothetical, I think she wouldn't care that I'm not taking out the garbage one more night. I think she's fine with that. Or I could react to her and like, no, that's something that she cares about, it's something we've talked about. And so I think in any relationship, we want to actually interact with the real person, not the person we imagine. And and we'll get that wrong, right? Because of our own biases and all this stuff. But as we continue to interact with them, it's important that we become transformed by who they are. So that's one challenge is getting the right Jesus. Second thing is weariness and discipleship. Again, we're coming out of a a challenging season. um, And some of us may be feeling like, what's the point? Let's just go on autopilot for a bit. Um, and in this, in this passage, we see that's the case with these fishermen. They were fishing all night, uh, pulled an all-nighter catching the stuff. And then Jesus comes and asks them to do some more. Can you relate? Have you ever had somebody do that to you, <laughs> whether God or otherwise? Maybe you help somebody move across town and you're, <laughs> you've put all the heavy furniture down. And they're like, you know, that, that big sofa, I think it looked better a lot on the other side of the room. Can you, can you just one more time? <laughs> Like, oh, my back. Um, so it, it can be really hard when, when God comes and says, actually, I don't want you to go into autopilot. I want you to rest, rest is important, but autopilot is not the right solution. Um, you know, my wife will tell you, I, I, when I see a big list of things to do, I get sleepy, <laughs> I like to nap. I think there's a part of me that either short circuits or more positively knows that i think i'll need a nap before i get to that that'll help so i get it i I get it can feel like one more thing to do and that puts me to sleep at least i don't know about you Um, and god again cares about rest one of the ten commandments is sabbath that's super important it's in there and uh in in the torah there's all sorts of stuff about you take sabbath and you make it bigger you make it into a year there's a jubilee year there's other things going on to rest so god cares about our rest when Elijah had done this big ministry job uh, and he was kind of, you know, losing it because he had been so tired, God doesn't say, all right, keep going. He says, all right, here's some food. Take a nap, uh, not take a nap, go to sleep. You need a night's sleep. Wakes up, more food, night's sleep. And, uh, and then they sort it out. So rest is important. And I don't think it's God that actually has the issue with rest. There was... Um, An anthropologist, James Sussman, who's on the New York Times, uh, Ezra Klein show recently, and he was saying that in the past, economists would say, once we've basically managed our our needs, our basic needs, we'll only work about 15 hours a week because there's no need to work anymore. Interestingly, people are working more than ever, um, and it seems like, even for very wealthy people, work is treated as if the truest reward for work is not rest, but more work. Why is that? Without going too far into this, the Bible would say that that might be a form of idolatry. We're always discipling and in our culture, productivity is is something that we value. And an idol is any good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. So so work is good, but when that's the thing that you draw your meaning from, it's going to push you. If you draw your meaning from Jesus, then you're already set and you go out into the world and you're working, not because you need an identity, but because you already have one. And you're trying to help other people get it. So God cares about rest. It's, it's some, it's, it might be our idols that get us um, mixed up and, and exhausted. Um, idols will work you to the bone. Because they say you need to perform so that um, you will be blessed. Whereas Jesus says, I have performed for you. And you are blessed. Now you can go out and bless the world with rest. So, yeah. But still here Jesus comes and says... Fish, after you're already tired, after you've pulled an all-nighter. Why? I think he's trying to to tell us, um, help us see what's at the center. Because by the very end, the disciples leave everything, right? They leave everything and follow him. So before at the center was some stuff that they were doing. um, But by the very end, they've turned around and now Jesus is at the center. They follow Jesus. And so I think it's possible that what Jesus is doing here is helping them see what's at their center and trade that out. This doesn't mean that following Jesus is you give up your profession at all. Esther was used by God, uh, Joseph. There's a bunch of people in the Bible. God uses us through our work, but it's what, what's at our center that matters. Still, it's tiring, right? We, we might be tired, so where do we get the power for this sort of thing? Jesus, um, we're talking about centering. The, the main issue in the Bible, the, the reason why people have fallen, you know, Adam and Eve, their main problem was that they centered themselves instead of God. That's the, that's the main tension in the beginning of the biblical text. And all throughout, the question is, will you center God or yourself? That's what the crowd was doing. They were centering themselves. Peter was centering himself. Jesus, when he, right in chapter four, at the very beginning, he goes into the wilderness. And he's tempted three times. And each time, it's a good thing, but he's asked to put that before the mission that God has given him. He's tempted with food. He's tempted with authority, which he rightly has, but he's given it up. He's, he's laid it down for us. Uh, and he's tempted with safety. All of, all, of, all of these are good things, but Satan's trying to get him to center himself. And so Jesus says no. Do you know why he did that? And beyond that, when it was Jesus' last night on earth, he pulled an all-nighter praying. His disciples couldn't join him. I mean, they, they were with him, but they fell asleep, as I would have, clearly. Um, they fell asleep, but, but he kept praying right before the worst day of his life. All-nighter, and then right into a horrific day that ended in his death. Why? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, For the joy that was set before him He endured the cross. We're his joy. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like the nets that broke under the heavy weight of fish, on the cross, Jesus was literally stretched to the breaking point for us. Having had the biggest vocational and financial success of their lives, the disciples gave up everything and followed him. But Jesus gave up his very godhood, his privilege, his intimate re- relationship with the Father for us. He left his power, his authority, his safety to fish for us. When you see him, when you really see Jesus leaving everything for you, that's transformational. Look at what it did to Simon. In Luke chapter 5, he says, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. But then in John chapter 21, a very similar situation where they're fishing and Jesus tells them to go out again and fish or put down one more time and they catch a ton of fish again. Someone recognizes that it's Jesus and they say, hey, that's the Lord. And in verse seven, it says, as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped in the water. This is the same G- Peter that um, actually had pre- betrayed Jesus. If, if It's a famous story. Uh, Peter's all like, I'm your best disciple. I'll follow you anywhere, right? And then Jesus said, you know what? Just tone that down a bit because really, you're going to deny me three times. I promise you that. No, no, not at all. I got you. And, um, and sure enough, Peter, when, when it cost him his life, denies him. So how can... <laughs> I mean, that would be really hard to go. You betrayed your, 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 the person you said that you follow the most and then you see him again. Why wouldn't you run away? Why wouldn't you run away? It's because of grace. This time when Peter, see, when Peter sees Jesus, it doesn't matter what's in the way, water or whatever, I'm going for you. And Jesus is there, I mean, it's not, we don't have it all up, but Jesus had prepared a breakfast for them. It wasn't just, I'm waiting for you, let's talk. He's got a breakfast for them. He doesn't talk about that. How can, how can Peter know, how can Jesus do this? How can he welcome someone who betrayed him? How can he welcome sinners into his arms? In Isaiah uh, chapter six, which we talked about before, when Isaiah was like, woe unto me, you know, I've got unclean lips, I'm undone by coming close to God. The resolution is that an angel takes a coal from the altar and touches his lips and he's cleansed. The altar is where sacrifices were made to atone for sin. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died so that nothing could stand between us and God. Friends, if you feel like you've let God down or your sins are too shameful, do you run away from God or do you run toward him? Do you realize it's already been paid for? Do you realize he already knows? He just wants you to come, be embraced, so that then he can send you out to embrace others. He's cleared a path and he's preparing a meal for all of us. And if Jesus gave up everything for for us, how are we, (laughs) and not just some cleaned up version of us, he gave up everything for us, knowing all that we have done, what we'll do, He gave it all up. How can we then not go out and do the same for others? Share that love and grace with others. When you fall in love with someone, there's a burst of energetic love uh, that is contagious. It's a burst of, it gives you energy to go out. The world is a different place. It doesn't matter. You know, you can stay up for, for a whole night with the person that you love. And following Jesus in the best moments, that's what it's like. Now, like Peter, we don't always get it, sometimes we get it mixed up. Peter still made mistakes. But Jesus is there with open arms waiting for us to run toward him. When we're exhausted, Jesus reminds us why we're here. To fish for people and usher in a new kingdom of shalom. And his love and grace, shown in what he gave up and went through to fish for us, gives us a second wind to go out and do the same for others. Will you answer Jesus' call to follow him and fish for people? Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for loving us so much that you gave up everything to fish for us, to save us, so we could be together. Thank you for coming to us even when we feel exhausted, reminding us why we're here and giving us renewed energy through your love to move forward and share that love and grace with others. For those of us like Peter, help us to run back to you. For those of us who don't know you, help us to see who you really are. Frightening though it might be at first so that we can ultimately see how amazing your grace is and run to you as well. If there is anything in the way, whether confusion about who you are, doubts about who you say you are, or fears about what it might mean to follow you, help us to work through them so we can all run to you. Lastly, may your spirit help us to follow you in fishing for people and renewing the world. In Jesus' name, amen.